Sie. Warum sind In Psalm 66 this morning. And here in Psalm 66, we have a song, a psalm of worship that involves the, the, uh, uh, the believer's witness about God to others. And what it shows is that the heart that desires to praise and worship the Lord always wants company. And always, I mean, whenever you find yourself desiring that God be praised and that God be worshipped, you desire also that other people would praise him and worship him with you. That they would join you and that you would praise the Lord together with them. That's why we're here this morning to gather together with people for a common cause of gathering together to worship our Lord and to hear his word and to heed it. That's why the psalmist summons us in verse 5 of verse 66. He says, come and see the works of the Lord. In fact, he calls everyone in verse 8. He says, oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. And like the psalmist here, uh, the witness of Christians ought to be aimed ultimately at drawing others uh, into worship to our God as well because of his awesome saving act, because of his awesome saving deeds, especially in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament will often present the Jewish people as being hostile to outsiders. Uh, maybe even abhorring the idea that Gentile outsiders would come to know God and that they would have a place to worship. Think about Jonah. Now God commissioned Jonah and he said, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to preach repentance in the city of Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I hate them. I don't want them to repent. I don't want them to be forgiven. I don't want them to know about you. I don't want them to be saved, but in fact, God did save them. They did repent, and God did save them. You know what? Jonah resented it. And this, in fact, is the attitude that we find with the ancient people in the uh, Jewish Old Testament. Well, a very different spirit than that is found throughout the book of Psalms. The Psalms will often call people to come, all people, to come and praise the Lord together. In fact, Psalm 66 is a very notable example of this. Now look at verses 1 through 4 here, uh, this little passage here. The psalmist begins, uh, Roman numeral number 1, with a universal call to worship. A universal call to worship. Verses 1 and 2 say this. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Because you see, since Israel's God is in fact the God over all the earth, it's fitting that everyone in all the earth should come to know and come to worship the God of the universe. 
Now, according to the Bible, the chief problem of mankind is that we don't want to do that very thing. We don't want to worship God. We don't want to bow down to Him. We don't want to serve Him. We don't desire to worship the Lord. And this is at the very heart of the sinful state of mankind. Even though Romans, uh, Romans 1 tells us that God revealed him to sell Himself to mankind uh, through creation, so that men are without excuse, they still fail to honor Him. They still fail to recognize him and give him the thanks that he truly deserves. Instead, they choose to make their own gods and to serve their own uh, devices and their own purposes. And since mankind rejects the revelation that God has given him in creation, the Lord has, for that reason, commissioned us, commissioned his people to summon the world to him by proclaiming his word. And that's what we see in Psalm 16. 66, the proclamation of God's word to summon mankind to worship the almighty God of the universe. Now, the psalmist turns now to the reason why. Why should all men worship God? What are the reasons that, that uh, we should worship God universally? Now, this opening stanza of verses 1 through 4, therefore, makes some important points about the worship that all men should render to God. First of all, the psalmist notes that worship, you know what, this is so counterintuitive uh, to us today. Worship should be prompted by an awareness of God's terrifying power. In other words, believe it or not, men should worship God because of fear. Because of fear. Verse 3. Say to God, how awesome are your works. You think about that word awesome. We throw the word awesome out a lot, don't we? Uh, in a good sense. You know, wow, that was awesome. Like, that was cool. That was great. But that's not what the psalmist means here when he says awesome. The word awesome actually means terrible or terrifying. So it's better to render the text, how terrible are your works? How terrifying are your works? And that emphasis cuts across the grain, I think, of many Christians uh, today who hesitate to present God as an object of fear and dread. You think of all the natural disasters that have come upon us lately. Uh, earthquakes and tsunamis and cyclones and, uh, and fires and floods and the different uh, disasters that have come across. And, and, and you know what? Through these things, many people suffer. And so many Christians will want to deny or even downplay God's involvement in, in events like this. Now, don't think God's a part of this. After all, you know, he's only the Sovereign God of all the universe, the heaven and earth. The Bible not only doesn't downplay God's sovereignty, but the Bible takes exactly the opposite approach. It not only admits God's involvement, but declares God's total sovereignty over all these terrible events as a reason why everyone should fear him 
and end our rebellion against him and should bow down to this awesome sovereign God, this terrible sovereign God. Verse 29 is an example of this. Psalm 29, sorry. Psalm 29 describes a powerful storm kind of ripping its way through through Palestine, churning up the waves of the sea, scattering the, the cedars of Lebanon. And David responds by praising God in this. He says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. He says, that's what you're seeing revealed by the fury of this storm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Or how about Psalm, go to Psalm 46 in verse 8, where it says this, Come behold the works of the Lord, who has brought desolations on the earth. Exactly the reason why we should fall down before him and worship him. William Plummer writes this, Take from the Bible its awful doctrines, and from providence its terrible acts, and the whole system under which God has placed us would be emasculated. Is that true? Any witness of God, listen, any witness of God that does not involve fear of the awesome power and majesty of Almighty God is not a complete uh, testimony. It's not a complete witness. Now look at the point that the psalmist makes in verse 3. He says this, through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. I like the way the ESV puts it. Your enemies will come cringing to you. Now, people may say you really don't see much of that today. People don't cringe or submit themselves to God. People sin blatantly. Uh, they they, they say all manners and all kinds of blasphemies and arrogant things against God. And they just go on laughing. They won't forever. They won't forever. Even before death, the wind blows and the storm comes and the lightning strikes and they cringe. At just a single manifestation of the wrath of Almighty God as it is. In this sense, the psalmist is right in verse 4 when he says this, All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. All the earth. He's not meaning that everyone will adore uh, God as they ought to. Probably not the case, but they're forced, in a sense, to acknowledge and cringe before him. Many times because of his terrible, awful uh, power and majesty, his wrathful power. That's the first thing we see here uh, about the worship of God in Psalm 66. Secondly, by noting enemies who cringe before God, the psalmist draws a comparison between them and those who know and love God, those who are familiar with God's love and his grace and his mercy. You see a contrast here. John Calvin says this, 
there is an implied contrast drawn between the voluntary homage which God's people yield as attracted by the sweet influences of grace and that slavish obedience which is wrung reluctantly from the unbeliever. There are those who don't know God. And all they know, something is wrong. All they know is God must be angry. Cringe. And that's all the relationship that they have with God. But there are others, others like us, who have learned his mercy and his grace and salvation. And, they, and, and our desire is above all that God should be praised, not only in fear, but also in joy. We worship him because of joy. Like verse 1 says, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. That's also what we see in verse 2. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Now this points out that the purpose of our worship, the purpose of our worship is that God's name be exalted on the earth. That God's name should be exalted. That's the purpose for which we're gathering here this morning. To exalt God's name on the earth. Not for evangelizing the lost. Not for personal edification, in other words, what I can get out of it. Yes, if it's biblical worship, those things will happen. The lost will be saved. We will be edified. Those are are wonderful byproducts of worship, but that's not the real reason we are here this morning. That's not the primary goal of our worship. We're not here for us. We are primarily here for God. That he would be known, that he would be declared, that he would be glorified in all his splendor and majesty and awesomeness. That's the purpose of our worship. Now notice that the psalmist urges that not only should worship glorify God, but because of its subject and content, The manner in which we worship should glorify God. In other words, worship itself should be glorious. He says this. He says, sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. The manner of our worship should be keeping uh, with the the glory of him who is being worshipped. Now, doesn't that exhortation kind of uh, go against the grain uh, uh, of, of those who are involved in so much casual worship today? The true point of which seems to be to uh, satisfy the, uh, the needs or the worldly preferences of man rather than worship God. Rather than to display the beauty and the truth and the holiness and the grace of God. One author put it this way, the manner in which he is praised should correspond to the matter for which he is being praised. Since we worship 
the God of glory. Should not our worship be glorious? Should not his praise be glorious? Secondly, psalmist urges musical worship as an, as an ideal for glorifying God's name. Musical worship. Verse 2. Sing out the honor of his name. And also in verse 4. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. The word for sing here is not only about vocal music, really, but it includes all manner of worship, including instrumental worship. Many musical instruments are mentioned throughout the psalms through which God's praise is offered. I think this verse is challenging. This verse is a challenge to us as song leaders and to those who are performing the music in our services. Right? To provide music and to be involved in musical excellence to the glory of God. We labor to provide musical excellence in our worship of God because we worship a God of excellence, worship a God of glory. Our worship should be glorious. Our music that we gather together to offer God all ought to display in its form and in its content the beauty and the glory of the God whom we are worshiping. Hey, do you think that singing today, we accomplish that just a little bit? Love those songs. Secondly, the psalmist urges, sorry, um, all of that, let's say, all of that constitutes the psalmist's universal call for worship. But next, one truth that the psalmist wants his song to celebrate is this. The saving work of God in history. The witness of God in history. And he gives a witness to invite others to join him in the exalting of the God of glory. He gives a form of invitation that's going to be used all throughout the Bible. In fact, it's the very approach to witnessing that's used by our Lord Jesus when he first called his disciples. You can read it about it in John 1, verse 39, when he tells them, come and see. And it's the same witness that the angels used when they spoke to the women at the empty tomb. They said, come, come and see the place where, the, where he lay, where the Lord lay. And that's the Christian witness. You see, we're, we're not calling people into some kind of emotional or sensational experience. No, we're to invite people to come and see a salvation that's based on what God has actually done in history. God has actually done on this earth. And I hope you realize that, that our salvation is in fact the um, uh, that the farthest thing from this notion of a blind leap of faith into the dark. That's not the Christian witness. The Christian witness is come and see. And we see this in verse 5. 
It's a testimony of evidence that compels faith in God because he says this, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing. There's that word again. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. Biblical faith is based, it rests on what God has done in history. If he didn't do it, our faith is wrong. Our faith is false. But he did do it. And that's the basis of our faith. How many, how, how, I mean, how different is that from many other Christian, uh, many other religions, might I say, false religions in the world? Buddhism or Islam or many of the other, of, of the other religions which are based on ideas, sayings. Think about this. Anyone could have said the things that Buddha said. But Christianity is not like that. Christianity declares what God has done in history on this green earth. And because he's done it, our faith exists. Because he's done it, our gospel exists. God has done in history. And so the psalmist calls us to witness the wonderful things that God has done. Now, what he particularly wants to bear testimony to is the greatest redemptive act up to that point. Now, I'm going to ask you, what is the, what is the greatest act of God in redemption in the Old Testament? At the Exodus? Right, that's referred to many times. The Exodus of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And he is witnessing to this in verses 6 and 7. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There uh, we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Now when God, uh, when the psalmist speaks of God turning the, 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 the sea into dry land, he's remembering uh, that great passage through the Red Sea. Think about this. The people of God had their back at, uh, to the, against the Red Sea. They were trapped. And Pharaoh's army was, was bearing down on them. And all looked lost. And with his mighty hand, God parted the sea so that the nation of Israel could cross that sea on dry land. And when Pharaoh and his army tried to follow, God closed the sea over top of them and delivered them. It was the great redemptive act of the Old Testament. And then he speaks about what happened at the other end of the Exodus. He says, they went through the river on foot. Now, what river was parted? Jordan, right? The Jordan, the river Jordan was parted. At the end of the Exodus, the people come to uh, they come out of the wilderness and they cross the River Jordan on dry land into the promised land. God reenacted that Red Sea crossing, parted the waters again, held back the waters, and, uh, and they crossed that River Jordan on foot on dry land. So there was, the writer is really pointing to the whole exodus here. Their deliverance from Egypt, their entrance into the promised land. It was the great redemptive act of the Old Testament. Now, to this point, uh, his point is not merely 
Well, look what God did many years ago. Now, look what God once did long ago. He's saying that not only is that true, but that that is typical of the kind of things he does. He is that kind of God. It's typical of the kind of God he is. That's what you and I can expect. It's a model for the salvation that we've been brought into today. We ourselves were in bondage to sin, having no salvation. It seemed like there was no hope. And God intervened through Jesus Christ. And he made a way for us to be saved, to be reconciled to him. He delivered us from our foes and he brought us into a new life. A life of hope. That's the kind of God he is. And reflecting on that, as the psalmist says, God's people should rejoice in their Savior, just as the nation should humble themselves before such a mighty and fearful and awesome God. Now that's the first instance that he witnesses uh, of God's might, mighty acts in all of history. Verses 8 through 12 offer a second incident of what God has done for Israel. A different kind of salvation. Read it. Starting with verse 8. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. That's verses 8 and 9. Yes, the Exodus is an example of God's redeeming power saving his people from bondage. But now the psalmist is speaking of God's preserving power, his preservation. And yes, he tries, God tries, and he tests his people. But he preserves them, and he brings them out to life. Verse 10, for you, O God, have tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. So the psalmist readily admits it was God who brought all these calamities upon them. God caused all the calamities he faced. It was God seeking to mold the character of his people. It was God using affliction to drive out idolatry, to drive out sin. Do you realize today, as a Christian, you can expect the same thing? I think we love ourselves, don't we? And we have a great plan for our lives, don't we? It's called happiness. You know what? God loves us far more than we love ourselves. God has a plan for our lives. That plan is called holy. And he puts all these trials and testings into our lives that we would never put there, we would never choose to go through, but he puts us there in order to help us, in order to refine us, and to make us and mold us to be more like him, to increase our faith, and he leads us through them. He's with us every step. That's what he did for Israel. 
verses 11 and 12. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. They were put in bondage. It's like being put in a net or having a huge weight placed upon their backs. They were subject to cruel masters. And many times the people of Israel were made to endure things that threatened their very existence. And yet at this point, the point of this is that through all these ordeals, through all these things that God himself was orchestrating, God himself was putting them through, he should be praised for protecting them, for protecting their souls, for for preserving them from annihilation, for preserving them from defeat. God keeps our soul among the living and does not allow us to, our feet to be. That verse? Not only that, but God's sovereign control guaranteed that his trusting people would be better off because of what they went through. Now, you and I may fear some of the trials and tests the Lord puts us through. The psalmist says, well, of course you're not going to choose these things for yourself. You're not going to volunteer for them, but you trust Almighty God. You trust His love. You trust His grace and His mercy. And you realize that, you know what, you're going to come out at a better place through faith in Him because of it. Why? Because God is leading you through God is guiding you. God keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. Verse 12. But you brought us out to rich. That's the testimony of God. So we don't know the exact circumstances that he's speaking of here in Psalm 6, but they knew. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And he's testifying for what God has done for them in history. God's power to redeem his people. God's power to guide them into new life. So the psalmist first gives a witness about what God has done in history. And you know, for us, that should always be our primary witness. If someone should come and ask us, so what do Christians believe? And we went through that for uh, a number of weeks in our class. What do Christians believe? Where should we go? We should first and primarily go to the Bible, right? We go to the Bible, and you and I should be able to explain biblically Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he did for salvation. That should be our first and primary uh, witness Then the psalmist does something I think he should do. He adds a personal testimony of what it has been like to be saved personally. A personal witness. He says in verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. My soul. That's the witness he had. 
Now, this concluding section of personal testimony begins with a vow of sacrifice and worship. Look at verses 13 and 14. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay, uh, I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. You see, back when he was still being tried, back when he was still being afflicted, the psalmist promised that if the Lord would deliver him, that he would come and offer sacrifices and perform vows to him. Now he's going to do that. He's going to do what he promised to do. But in recording this resolution, he's, what he's really doing is presenting his worship as a testimony, as a witness. The, the witness of his worship to his faith in the Lord. He says in verse 15, I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. I'm going to offer burnt offerings. Basically what he's saying is this, you're a, you're a great God. and You are worthy of offering costly things to. In fact, I consecrate my whole self to you and all that I have by offering this burnt offering to you. And through his worship, the psalmist bears testimony to God, to the greatness of God, to the glory of God, to the worthiness of the God whom he is sacrificing. Realize? Do you realize we, too, by the manner of our worship, bear testimony to the world of the God that we've come to worship? Do we take it seriously? Think about this. Worship that caters to the preferences of men and then offers preaching that tickles the fancies of those who want to hear it Tickles the ears. What kind of God does that reveal? It reveals a God who is inconsequential. It reveals a God who must be desperate for the, for the approval of man, not the other way around. But worship that arises from God's own word, that declares scriptural truths regarding the God uh, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the dreadfulness of sin, uh, the, the judgment of sin on mankind, the need for everyone to be saved through the blood of Christ, that, that bears testimony to a Lord and Savior to whom we must come, surrendering ourselves in repentance and faith. Now that is the true God. We bear witness to Him through our worship. Now, in addition to the witness of his worship, the psalmist testifies to what God has done for, uh, personally for him, especially, he says, in answer to his prayers. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17 now. Verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. We as Christians have always delighted in telling others of what God has done for us. What a great thing. 
What a great testimony. The blessing it's been to receive God's forgiveness and God's goodness toward us. And we share that with others. That's a great thing. Now remember, the primary witness, of course, is always the biblical testimony to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, what he, God has done for us in Christ. But how glad we are to give a personal word, the witness of our word of what he's done for us. We have the witness of our worship, witness of, the, of our words. And God will use our testimony as an encouragement to others. As we tell others what God has done for my soul. As we tell them in simple, personal, and passionate language, God can bless them as well. Now as the psalmist gives his testimony, he wants us to know how he learned to cry out to God in prayer. That's found in verses 17 through 19. He says the first thing he had to do was simply cry out to him. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. But secondly, he says he couldn't have expected God to listen if he were just living in right? Still rebellious, still seeking a life of sin. God would not have answered prayers. God would not have heard him. He informs us in verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But they, then he tells us that, uh, that when he surrendered in faith and repentance, he cried out to God to save, them, uh, save him. Then he bears that testimony in verse 19, but certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. This psalm, really, this psalm convicts us. We need to be able to give that same kind of testimony. We need to know what the Bible says about Jesus so that we can explain it uh, from explain salvation from the Bible to others. But then we should also be growing in grace. We should be seeking and experiencing the righteousness, peace, the joy, the blessedness that belongs to the children of God. Why? Well, for many reasons, but one of those reasons is so that we can tell them to others in a way that God will use. We can share it with others around us. Let me read the psalmist's final words in verse 20. I think it's a lesson that every one of us is called to learn and then to share with others. He says, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Make sure you know that truth. That God will not check for a humble, believing, penitent prayer that steadfast love never ended. For believer, let me conclude by just pointing out that at the very heart of Psalm 66 is this 
uh, is the psalmist's plea that's found in verse 8. Read it again. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. In that verse, we see the motive of all true evangelism. The passionate desire that God would be known and blessed and praised by more and more and more people. Particularly the people in our lives. People who are our neighbors. People who are our co-workers. People who are around us. That's the motive for our evangelism. That people would praise the Lord together with us. But we also see in this expression, our God. We see the goal of our evangelism, that others would come to know this God that we know. Come and see what God has done, especially through Jesus Christ. And together they would join us and say of him, that's our God. We've come to him, we've surrendered to him, we've found forgiveness. And they with us humbly be able to tell what God has done in their life. Let's pray. Again, we do thank you for challenge. Thank you for this time of, of worship together. Lord, instill upon our hearts the need for glorious work. Bring into our hearts and into our minds the, the truth. We worship the God of the universe. We worship this awesome, majestic God. This glorious God should not also look our praise be means we do our best. We do our best to, to, to give music, to sing, and to play, and to lead, and to do all things, because everything we do reflects the glory of the one who we are bringing praise Let our praise, Lord. Lord, may we be out even this morning. We go into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and other places, our schools where we are. Lord, have a heart, a compassion, and a desire to, to see other people come to know and worship the God of the universe, this awesome God along with us. Lord, bless our efforts as 